Welcome to the High Pass Podcast. This is Derek Blackburn, your host, and this week I have Alex Allenson, producer and co-owner of The Bridge Sound and Stage in Cambridge, Massachusetts. First, I wanted to announce a change in format. This is because of your suggestions and requests to me. I've read your emails, your messages on Instagram, your reviews, the polls that you've answered at the end of my podcast on Spotify, and I'm taking everything you're suggesting into account. So we're going to do something a little different this week. The first thing I want to talk about is the community and specifically the audio engineering community here in the Boston metro area. In my opinion, the community is robust. There are many freelance engineers. There are many commercial studios and project studios, and there's plenty of people working at places like the recording company. And there's even quite a few studios that have an open door policy for freelance engineers. Now, there are a lot of other problems that I can address that do affect audio engineers, but specifically, I just want to concentrate on talking about people who produce, record, mix, and master audio. The question I get most often is, how can I participate in this community? And my answer is always, join a community arts organization. You can join a community arts organization in your town through the Cultural Council. In Massachusetts, we have local community councils, and it's up to them to disseminate grants to people in the community who have culturally relevant projects that benefit their communities directly. You could also join a professional organization like the Audio Engineering Society or the Recording Academy. The Audio Engineering Society is aimed at audio professionals mostly. Recording Academy is people who work in the music industry and related fields, although there is quite a bit of overlap between the two. There's too many benefits to list here as I'm speaking to you, but if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact me or the Audio Engineering Society Boston section at bostonaes.org, and we'll try to answer any questions you might have. I definitely understand there's people out there who are like, I don't want to join an organization. I don't want to pay any money to some entity to do what? Totally understand that. But I'm telling you right now, it's the best way to meet the people you want to meet in your community. So uh, consider it. All right, let's check in with Alex over at the bridge. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. How are you, Derek? I'm doing great. You were just saying that it's been uh, quite a few years since we've seen each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, just like seeing you and the uh, studio behind you, I, I, I do miss those days. Got to get yeah. back to those days again. <laughs> you come back and visit sometime. <laughs> I will. I will. I'll have to. So let's just get right into it. Um, I want you to tell me a bit about yourself, kind of like, you know, when you were growing up, um, how did you get involved in music? Were you like in school band or did you like, you know, pick up a guitar or play drums or something like that? Like, how was it yeah. that you kind of got interested in doing this? Well, uh, guitar is my main instrument and I picked that up from my grandfather. He, he was the guitarist in my family. Like my uh, mother was musical. She played piano and sang and stuff like that. But uh, guitar was something that was I was interested in at a pretty young age uh, by way of my grandfather. Uh, I got my first guitar probably like 
fourth, fifth grade. And like at that point, like, um, you know, it was, you know, just like this shitty little acoustic guitar, but I was able to bang on it and, you know, make noise. Um, but even before that, like music was always just something that like I always was like drawn to. I was just always interested in. I always like to uh, say that um, my first recording experience was uh, walking around with uh, one of those Fisher Price recording things with oh, a yeah. cassette of uh, Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London <laughs> in it and uh, it had a little microphone on it. So I was walking around making noise with that. <laughs> Uh, but when I started to like actually get into music was probably like fourth, fifth grade, uh, started taking guitar lessons, focusing on that. And, um, uh, by way of that, you know, start playing in rock bands, uh, and, you know, at middle school it was probably like, I was still kind of like poorly playing sports and like doing music. And it, I got to the point where like, I had to pick one thing to kind of pursue, but would not be like mediocre at both. So uh, I started to like gravitate towards taking music classes. Like I said, I was taking guitar lessons. Um, I played in the high school jazz band. I sang in high school chorale. I took music theory courses. I took jazz theory courses. Basically anything that like my school had to offer musically, I was like into it. Like I remember they had a popular music course. It's just like anything that had music attached to it. I really tried to submerse myself in, in addition to playing in, you know, high school, I played in thrash bands. I played in a lot of metal bands. So at your school, they had a pretty robust arts program then. It was not, it sounds robust when I say it out loud like that, but there was like probably like three or four kids in every class. There wasn't really like a lot of support in it. There were very small like arts classes and, um, you know, they did what they could. And I had some wonderful teachers, like some of my high school music teachers were um, so important to my development uh, as far as not only a musician, but just as a person. I was very close to all three of them. Um but, um, you know, the school, they did what they could with, with, with what the school allotted them to. There was definitely more of an emphasis where I grew up on sports and stuff like that. But um, it, I was I feel fortunate when speaking to other folks in their like musical experiences in high school to have what I did have. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said this on previous podcasts. I, I'm really surprised that. There are some schools of people who, you know, went to school around here in, in Massachusetts that some of the school districts didn't have a fully formed um, arts and music program. And uh, yeah. where I grew up, I mean, it was like the middle of nowhere, Illinois. And we had like, I mean, we had a marching band in, in middle school, you know, like that, that it takes a lot of dedication on the students and the educators side to like put something like that together and develop that sort of program. So that's cool that you, that you had that experience. So when you were in high school and you were kind of like getting out of the like more structured program and getting more into like, I'm, I'm assuming like playing in bands and stuff like that. Like what was the, how did that kind of formulate, you know, like for, for example, like I met a lot of kids like in seventh and eighth grade at the school talent show. And I was just like, crap, there's all these other kids that play guitar and drums. Yeah. Where, where did they come from? What was that like for you? <laughs> 
I was just looking for kids in Metallica shirts or Slayer shirts, and you know, <laughs> we oh, all yeah. kind of flocked together. That's to awesome. Bands. <laughs> you know, there was a few of us. There was a lot of us, but there was a few of us, and we all played in bands. And then when we started playing in our band, we go to the uh, uh, the neighboring towns, Knights of Columbus, and do a ten bands for ten bucks. And then you meet a bunch of cats who are way older than you, and you know, in their like early twenties, maybe thirties, and you start playing shows with them, and um, you know. When I look back at some of the shows and uh, I was playing when I was still a teenager, uh, it's kind of crazy. My mom let me go out on like on a Tuesday night to play in like Hartford. Right. <laughs> I feel like... Yeah. But, um, we did and also, it. And... <laughs> also that there were just people who were putting those shows on. Yeah. You know, that there was just like this this scene of people who just kind of knew how to, you know, book a venue or, you know, like sometimes like we played in like parish halls and stuff like that. It's just, it was just amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, somebody figured out like how to get a permit from the park district. Yeah. Then you have to book a cop to stand outside (laughs) (laughs) and like, you know, steal all, hide all the alcohol and, you know, police that stuff. But yeah, Yeah. uh, I did a lot of that. Um, but somewhere along the line, um, obviously, you know, when you're in a band, you, you, you want to play shows and you want to write songs, but then eventually you decide you want to record, have a recording of something. And, uh, being 15, 16 years old, I didn't have any money, uh, that wasn't already invested in my musical equipment. Uh, and I didn't have any really like idea of like where to like go make a record. I mean, at this point, I was I moved around a lot when I was a kid. But when I was in high school, I settled in a, a um, it's a pretty small cow town in Ellington. So like there wasn't like a lot of like I couldn't like walk down the street and like find a recording studio. I had no idea where to like find that stuff. So uh, what we did was, was we just kind of pooled our resources and like built like this like crappy little recording space in my parents' basement where we rehearsed. And that's when like I figured out that. I love recording and producing music more than I did actually writing and performing it. Like, you know, the other guys in the groups I played with, they just wanted to get something down so that we could show someone that we didn't suck and get on shows. I was like more about doing more takes, figuring out plugins, like the signal flow of it, making it work, making it better. I always wanted to tinker down there and they had to basically drag me out of my parents' basement to start doing shows. (laughs) And that's like... When I figured, like, okay, like, I like this, but this side of it is where I'm more drawn to. And I kind of ran with it after that. Um, And uh, that's where I kind of, you know, figured out that this could be a thing. Like, this could be the thing instead of, like, just playing all the time. Yeah. Do you recall what that first recording setup consisted of? Like, was it, you said plug-in, so was it computer-based? It, 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 it took a while to get to the computer base. So I remember um, we were walking into a daddy's junkie music at the time to get like, I don't know, some guitar strings or something. Me and the guitarist. Rest in peace. In Rest in peace. And I remember looking to my left uh, on the floor uh, right when I walked in and there was this giant Yamaha 1604 cha- uh, 16 channel <laughs> mixer for $200. <laughs> it was it was humongous. Like it had the road case with it too. Like 
uh, we had to, uh, I was just like, you know what, let's buy this and bring this home to my, uh, my basement, not knowing at all what to do with it. Um, just this giant 16-channel console. I literally, uh, quick sidebar, I had it until I moved to Boston, and then I had to, like, sell it for $100 because it couldn't come with me to Boston. I kind of oh, wish man. I still had it. Um, but we brought that home and not knowing what to do with it at all. So we had, and like, you know, we had no tape, we had no like really means of doing that, but we had like all of these channels of everything. So what we did have though was a like Windows 98 Dell computer. So what we did was uh, I got like this cheap version of a cakewalk program called Guitar Tracks. I think it allowed you to have like wow. eight inputs eight mono sources at all times so for the first recordings what we did was is we plugged it we got like this like shitty like road case of like mics to mic up the drums and like a bunch of sm57s as we mic'd up all of the drums into this 1604 like yamaha thing and like we could like hear like a mix on the board and then what we did was is we did a mono out of the board xlr and we got an adapter and put that to quarter inch and then we put the quarter inch into an eighth inch, and then we plugged it into the back <laughs> of, of oh the Dell God. computer. And what? Did and the, so we mixed the drums in real time. <laughs> do you clip it <laughs> out like completely? Yeah. yeah. And then like mixed them down like on the board, and then recorded them into the DAW uh, that way, like just like into the back of the computer. No mic pre's or anything. It sounded so bad. But like we we captured the sound uh, that and that's just where it started. Like, um, and then after that we were just overdub everything. We only had eight channels to work with, and I remember like the plugins that they had on there. I'm pretty sure they were like all like audio suite based. Like you couldn't just like turn them on and off. It's like if you wanted to put something on there, you had to like print it in real time. And I remember uh, my bassist at the time like took one of my vocal parts and like printed a chorus effect on it. And we could no way of undoing it. So, like, the final recording just, like, had a bunch of chords. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's funny. I've never heard of Guitar Tracks, but it sounds a lot like another piece of software that I used, which uh, was Cool Edit Pro, which I know a lot of people remember Cool Edit Pro, but Guitar Tracks, I'm going to have to look that up later. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So that's um, where it all began. You flash forward a few more years, um, my high school jazz professor um he like did an after school like recording program which was like me and like one other kid and they had like pr he like got a license like, i want to say like well, this was like 2005 2006 must have been like pro tools 5 6 or something like that but that was my first introduction to pro tools right there and like i still like kind of remember like how like like blocky it was like and like how like clunky it was but that i got to like mess around and like figure out like what a real doll looked like having more channels uh interfacing stuff like that like they had all of that stuff they had like one of the really old like mbox style things like whatever they had back in 2006 i can't remember but that was like my first like window into like okay this is how you like don't do it through like <laughs> a bunch of adapters into the back of your Dell. Yeah, that's hilarious. So when when you kind of when you were introduced to Pro Tools, you you said you got a taste of that. Like after high school, when did you kind of graduate to the next level? When did you kind of assemble what what would become like the next level of like your recording rig? You know, it took me a little bit to find my way. So, like, I knew that, like, I wanted to do something, like, audio-related when, like, I went to uh, went to um, college. 
the the career services at my school didn't really like help me find anything like that I feel like would have like grabbed me so I ended up at a community college in Connecticut doing like general communications like mass media stuff broadcast and didn't and like there was like a couple like recording programs but they were like really really like I mean I got that was I got my hands on some tape then and I got like it was uh to work more in pro tools and do some more DAW related stuff but like it was really kind of like an afterthought to like maybe you want to work for NBC and hold like a, a boom mic or like run a switchboard or something like that it was like all after so it didn't really grab me the way that I wanted to so I um after a few semesters at community college I took a, a step back from school and pursued what was uh, uh, going to be a career in culinary arts. Um, I actually, uh, I cooked all of my way through high school. And then, you know, after high school and college, like that's how like I like made money was working in restaurants and uh, I was doing pretty well at it. So I, I thought that maybe that's what I was going to do. And um, I pursued that for a few years um, until... I realized I was absolutely miserable. <laughs> you know, it's, sometimes you don't realize you're miserable until like you're in the thick of being absolutely miserable. Right. Um, it, it, it took a couple uh, life awakenings for me to see it. But like um, I always told myself when I was working in restaurants, like I was uh, a sous, sous chef for a while and I was under some people um, and I was doing it at a pretty young age that like if I ever got control of like a kitchen, I got to staff it the way I wanted to. I got to design a menu. I got to like really kind of like organize things the way I wanted to um, that I would like it then. So like I was like focused on like working my way up the ladder in a kitchen. And then I got that opportunity. The the, the kitchen manager at the place I was working at left and then I got um, just they didn't have anyone in line. So they just started having me do it. And I was even more miserable, <laughs> turns out. I just, it wasn't the fact that I didn't have control over something. It was, it was the actual thing. I just had, didn't want it at all. At that point, I was like 22, I think. And I uh, decided, I remember the exact moment laying in my bed one morning, uh, staring at the ceiling. It was like a February. I was like looking at the ceiling and I was like, I'm... I hate everything about my life, and um, <laughs> I got to change something about this. I'm 22 years old. I shouldn't feel this way. So it was pretty fast that, like, I I um, decided that I needed to actually give audio another try. Like, find the right program, find the right like, community, find something else that wasn't just the community college down the road. And uh, that's when I pretty fast like that was february in september i was living in boston and, and i was back in school and i was actually giving it a real go and then you know from there on out i um uh, i graduated i went to internships and just been kind of chipping away at it ever since that that's really great so when you went to college for audio what was what year um what year are we talking about here this was 2010 uh, I, went, I moved to Boston. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there was a, and there still is, but there was a thriving music scene in Boston and a lot of studios, right? Yeah. So how did you end up at the bridge? So my, my career service place uh, uh, program uh, at school, uh, I went and I said I want internships and I went, I interned at a couple different places and um, I learned a lot from all of them. But the bridge was 
the last place I interned. I I went to a couple different studios and I wanted to check out people's different workflows, different setups. I really kind of wanted to like see how a a lot of people do it so that I could like figure out what worked for me. And the bridge was um, I started interning here at um, uh, September of 2011. And it just kind of immediately spoke to me. Like when I walked through the door, like uh, uh, it's lots changed since then. But like there was this giant room you walk in and like um, there was like a particular like vibe and aesthetic that felt nice. And like uh, from the minute I sat down for my interview, um, I felt very comfortable there. And I felt like very creatively inspired. And like the other places, while were nice they were they didn't immediately grab me the way this place did and i knew that i wanted to spend some time here i didn't know it was going to be you know 12 years but, right right uh, <laughs> i dev- i definitely want to go into more about the bridge but before we do in this arc from when you were in school to where you were trying to kind of find yourself and what you were going to be doing for you know the rest of your life were there any mentors or anything or anyone who really inspired you to kind of go down this path? Totally. Uh, My folks have always been my biggest supporters, and I'm really, really lucky to have them both. Like, even like I I touched on a little bit earlier, when I was playing in bands, like they really like fostered me wanting to play, like not even just in school band, but like rock bands that let us like rehearse at the house. They let me cannibalize their computer for recording. (laughs) They, They 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 would go to my shows like they would literally i don't know if you're familiar with the hartford music scene but they would go to the webster theater to see their high school uh, their son's thrash metal band play um i'm assuming that it was a colorful crowd it was a very colorful (laughs) club (laughs) but they they were very supportive of me throughout the whole process and like they were uh ecstatic when i approached them because they knew that i wasn't like really happy with what i was doing and they were ecstatic when i said i want to move away and go back to school and figure it out. Um, They helped me throughout the process and they pushed me out to do it. So they're very supportive. I've had a lot of really good teachers. Uh, Like I I, I said earlier, my high school music teachers were all really, really important for me, like both musically, but also like just life-wise. Like uh, I'm still connected to all three of them and we, we, we share notes every once in a while. They're incredible. And then even uh, in college when I was in school I had a lot of really really good mentors through that program too that I'm still very friendly with that's that's awesome that's a really interesting parallel um about you and I is I also have three music directors from when I was in high school who I'm still connected with and who I still talk to all the time and I really value their especially now looking back I really have valued their guidance and uh, presence in my life in in so many ways. Let's talk about the bridge. Sure. Can you give me like a brief kind of history of the bridge and kind of how it got started? Sure. So um, I joined on later as an intern, but before me, it was the founders were uh, Owen Curtin, uh, our, our good friend, and uh, Janos Fulop, uh, my also our good friend. Um, they Janos, whose producer's name is The Archetype, um, was one of Owen's students at Emerson. And in about 2008, um, they were kind of like finding places to work and they were kind of finding that they needed to like, I think Owen had like this like 
smaller, like kind of like overdub, like sound booth like space that was a little bit uh, smaller and he was having to outsource like larger recordings to other places and bring the mix back and uh, Janos was looking for a place after he had graduated to like start working himself so the two of them found this place and in 2008 and were able to get it up and running uh, opened in 2009 um, and like I, I like I said I wasn't there for that I joined it in 2011 and when I first walked in, it was um, the, one of the biggest live rooms I've ever seen. Uh, it, it's still rather big, but um, it was just, just this giant room that uh, I remember sitting down for my interview in the couch in the middle of the live room. And I was just like looking around like, oh, my God, like this place is fucking huge. <laughs> At that point, I had only been in like smaller like live rooms. So like it was like really just like a, a, a it looked it felt like a venue. Like, uh, you know, we get that a lot because of the raised like stage area. But um after interning here for um, a, a, about a year or so, uh, I uh, actually got my first opportunity to do work here, but it wasn't audio work. So while I was interning here, I was basically trying to do whatever I could uh, that wasn't restaurant work to support myself. So my uh, it was a, a really uh, interesting tapestry of gigs. I was uh, over at uh, High Output uh, unloading uh, trucks at their film production sites. I was uh, freelancing stuff for AVFX. I was recording hip-hop in my Alston apartment. I was uh, going anywhere I could with the, the microphones I had amassed to record folk singers. Like, I was really doing my best to, like, not set foot in a restaurant after I graduated because I knew that if... I didn't clean break it. I'd always have that be a part of my life. So um, any way I could do something that was like adjacent to audio uh, and make money, I was trying to do that on top of interning. And one of the gigs I ended up landing, uh, and I I had to kind of fib my way into getting this, was uh, I was an accounts and credits manager for a company called uh, Music Studio Direct. Uh, It was like a small dealership that was in Alston. And um, I had, you know, told them that I had QuickBooks and accounting experience when, when I did not because I just wanted something that was nine to five, that I, a paycheck that I could count on. And like I said, it, it checked the box of audio adjacent because we were a dealership. So um, I did the interview uh, for the position. I went home and I watched some YouTube videos on QuickBooks and thumbed my way through it and I got the gig. Um, the reason why I talk about that was because uh, Janos, uh, he through interning through him, he found out that I was doing this this accounts and credits position and they needed a bookkeeper at the bridge. So before I ever got a chance to engineer anything, they had me keeping their books, like running QuickBooks. And that was my foot through the door to engineering here was uh, because they had an engineer at the time who had left or taken a step back. And I was, because they had already gotten to know me and trust me through this accounting position, uh, they gave me the first opportunity to step in and do some engineering. And, you know, it kind of spiderwebbed from there. Yeah, I would love if you could... Just say a couple things about how, about what it's like to do books at a studio as, as being your foot in the door, because that is a skill that not many people have off, like right off the bat, if they work in a, in a studio. 
Oh, the books that we inherit, I inherited here at the studio uh, before, like I started doing stuff here. They were atrocious. Like it was crazy. Like people were just like leaving cash and like like cash boxes, and like there was like no like idea of like where it came from or how to assign it to clients. And like we have an accountant, obviously, like uh, that helps us through like all the tax process. But like managing books at a studio, especially one that has like many people working at it like not just like one person like you have to chase people to fill out timesheets you have to figure out where payments come from and like now you know decade later we have a very good system and everyone is great about it but like getting in for the first time and not really knowing much about the business and like not knowing anything about like where things are it was uh definitely uh, a learning process for me (laughs) yeah a very valuable one i'm sure so the bridge started in 2009 yep. and it's gone through a couple of iterations, correct? I mean, you've, you guys have done a lot of work over there. Yeah. Um, I know a little bit about the work that's been done there to kind of change things around. Sure. Um, but can you tell me some of like the big upgrades that you guys have done in the last few years? Sure. So the big, the first big milestone I can think of was, like I said, we uh, we opened in two thousand nine, and when we opened up, it was basically just like everybody bring what they have, and we'll put it in the same room, we'll plug it in and go, and then we'll 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 see what happens from there on out. There was no like plan for like what if we want to do this in the future, or like what if we want to change this or do that. It was very much just like set up, go. We'll reevaluate in five years and see if we're still uh, alive, and then what we'll do from there. So in when 2015 rolled around, um, we were still alive and we wanted to build for the future. So we completely um, shut down for a couple months, hired some uh, skilled technicians in the area and rewired the entire studio in a way that we felt like we wanted to work towards the future. Uh, The biggest uh, change being, you know, besides the fact that everything is like labeled and solid and organized and and built for the future, is we got rid of our console. Uh, we had this very uh, mediocre Otari console we were working with here, and we explored um, some options as far as consoles go. We were like, okay, well, we could do this co- control service from Avid. Like, what would happen if we took out uh, a loan and we got, like, a really fancy Neve console? Like, what we wanted to do. And then when we landed on it, we looked at each other, and we are just like, you know, we love working on consoles. It's a lot of fun. There's 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 so much creative musical things that are unique to working on consoles. But at the end of the day, I feel like what most folks want is just a creative sitting here ready to make creative stuff. And um, we felt that rather than sinking all of our money into a console that would be mostly for us and our enjoyment, like we would right. be- better... <laughs> better save those funds for things that would help creatives be their best creative selves here more instruments um a a better like uh creative layout uh better amplifiers stuff like that like and we didn't obviously amass all that stuff at once but rather than like you know really investing in like this really big console uh we decided to keep everything modular here easy uh like we 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 really invested heavily into 500 series stuff outboard gear um and we uh put a giant uh uh, native instruments control service where the console would be just to kind of help signify that we are just musicians looking to help musicians make music (laughs) at the end of the day 
Yeah, I have to say, if anybody goes to your website or looks like the pictures on your Instagram, they, they'll see that there's not really a want as far as outboard gear goes. Uh, and the, you know, the uh, absence of a large format analog console is, you know, it's nobody cares. <laughs> like it's, it's a beautiful... <laughs> like I said. It's fun. Every once in a while, I'll do a record outside of this place, and I'll get my hands like on a Trident board, and I'm like, oh, shit, maybe I do want to do this, and maybe someday in the future we will. But at the time, it, like with the funds that we had and the way we saw like re workflows going, we felt like it was just yeah, not necessary, especially with like what folks expect recall-wise right now. I still get you know calls Absolutely. all the time. It's like, you know what? This record's been done for like three weeks, but can you go back in and turn the toms up? Just like one dB. I can accommodate those things uh, in a pretty fast format because I don't have to call up a, a mix recall. I I agree. I have a little smaller operation here and I have gone back and forth with the whole console thing. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, recall is just, it, it's the same, it's the same uh, same situation, just being able to open up a session from six months, a year, two years yeah. before and make those changes. It's yeah. I don't, I don't miss a console. I love going to see them though. <laughs> you know, I love going to studios that have large, beautiful, yeah. some sometimes vintage consoles, but, uh, yeah, I'm totally on the same page with you there. Yeah. So, we love them because we don't have to maintain them. <laughs> we get to work on them and leave. <laughs> absolutely. 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 You know, we still have to maintain the hardware that we do have. Sure. But it's not like, not going to yeah. take us down for a week while somebody exactly. finds a gremlin in one of the channels or the master section. or yeah. no, no, thank you. Uh, but God bless those who take on yeah. that challenge. Yeah, I was going to say, like, in addition to the rewiring uh, our A room, a big change that happened uh, was uh, we partitioned the live room in um, 2012. So when I, like I said, when I walked in, it's this giant room. We're looking at the space and how we could, like, make it more functional for everyone. And before we partitioned the live room, there was no lounge. There, we have a B room now. There is no B room. We had no office. It was just one big open space. And while impressive, it, it there was no one for, place to hang out, like for artists who might be waiting for their session to start. There was no place to make a cup of coffee without interrupting drum recording. You couldn't even go to the bathroom without like waiting for a take to be done. The big thing was installing this wall that partitioned our, our live room so that we could kind of restructure the space in a way that gave us more flexibility. And uh, that was a, definitely a stepped process. The first thing that went up was the wall and then we just stuck like a computer in the corner and like we weren't even really thinking B room at the time we were thinking about we need a lounge they were like well this is enough space like rather than have it being an office why don't we stick a Pro Tools machine in here so that we can do quick edits quick edits turned into overdubs overdubs turned into quick mixes and then finally we saw that there was definitely enough room and there was a need for a smaller room like so that folks didn't have to book like the big room having a smaller space secondary room for a lesser rate.
site with a house engineer was a market I felt like people needed because I was doing it at the time. I was rec- charging pretty similar rates to work at a, out of my bedroom <laughs> in Alston. Having a room that is 40 an hour with an engineer and knowing that your files are safe and you get to go to like a professional environment and have a lounge, ha- have like uh, a professional experience uh, was something that I felt was um, needed for our space and, and uh, to kind of take it to the next level. It's been really good for folks because it, um, we love working with like artists who are like seasoned and working on records for years and years and years and but we also love working with people who are maybe recording for their first time and having a smaller room that is less intimidating and more affordable kind of helps us stay within the 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 arts community that that is still developing you know maybe they work in our b room for their first record they get more comfortable and they work and then they upgrade to our a room but um having that like in between smaller room was definitely uh, vital to our our development as a studio. The Bridge is definitely a nerve center of a well-developed music community in the Boston area. Who are the kinds of people who come in and work with you? We definitely have a wide array of folks who work here, and I think that's by nature of myself in the community that I spend my mo- most of my time in, and then my business partner, Janos, the, the community that he spends his time in. He is uh, a renowned producer in uh, hip-hop music, pop music. That's really been his central focus, and he's been doing that for years and years and years, and he's quite good at it. Um, and when I first started here, um, and I was interning, it was basically a hip-hop studio. I mean, I didn't meet Owen until about three, four months into, like, my internship here. And um, he was the person who did the more, like, rock band-oriented stuff. And, like, so a lot of my internship here was uh, spending time watching Janos record and produce hip-hop music. And I, you know, while I have a deep love for hip-hop and have worked on a lot of hip-hop music, I've always been more geared towards recording bands and heavier music. So when, as I was trying to develop my own clientele, um, those were the shows I would go to. I would go to rock shows. I'd go to O'Brien's. I'd, I'd go to all of the, the hole-in-the-wall venues. I'd go to Alston house party shows back when, you know, I, I could muster the strength to do it. And that is, like, really what I focused on, like, getting gigs like that. And just by way of me really developing that part of my community and working with them here and and arc still continuing the hip-hop stuff we get really a wide array of everything here um i've been really lucky a lot of folks have taken chances on me because i've you know like most i I was just like this wide-eyed kid who was just going to show saying i like your band and then connecting with them and then just um just you know not necessarily being like hey you should record with me but like what i would do was i'd I'm a fan. Like, I, I just like bands. I like connecting with people. I, I like being in the scene. And, you know, you just, you stay interested enough in someone eventually that I feel like, you know, if it's, um, they'll find their own way of figuring out, like, what you do and whether or not it's going to work. And um, you do a good job for one person, they tell the next person. And you eventually, before you know it, you're working with a, a bunch of really, really dope artists. Um and I've just been really fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time a lot for uh, a lot of different instances and connected with the right folks. Um, and uh, this past year um, has been one of my favorite creative years. I've worked on a lot of records this past year that like were very, very, very special to me. And um, I'm very excited about some of the stuff that's coming out. Are there any like memorable 
moments that you've had as an engineer in the last few years that you can tell us about? I've just been more creatively involved with a lot of the records that I'm working on. I feel like I'm getting a lot more gigs that are coming to me because people are familiar with my work and they want me to do the thing that I did with someone else. Like, not necessarily to a T, but they heard something that they like of mine and they, <clears throat> they, they're they not just coming to me because they want me to capture a good recording or because I have a big drum room or because I have um, the, the, this particular amplifier. They're coming to the bridge because they want me to look at what they have and through my creative lens and help them get that extra 10% that may be missing. And getting more of those gigs is um, really filled my heart up a lot because that's why we do it, right? You know, I, I'm happy to, you know, make any sort of noise. I love just tracking a record and, you know, I'm happy to do like any sort of like, you know, yeah, our job really can be any sort of like spectrum. It could be just a recording, it could be just mixing, it could be just mastering, and I, I do all of those different things. But uh, my favorite ones are the folks that ask me to get in on pre-production, talk about song arrangement, and like help them like develop their stuff. And um, um, when you feel like you've made a um, an impact in someone else's art. Uh, that wouldn't have been there otherwise, those are my favorite moments. And it's like these little things like um, you go to a show and you see a band that you made a record with and they like to pedal so much that you have your studio, it's on their board now. Or um, that that vocal harmony that you helped write is now being performed live. Or um, uh, just anything like that, like something that wasn't there until like you helped them see something differently about their art are my favorite moments. Yeah, that is the real value of going to a recording studio and working with someone who has had the benefit of working with hundreds and hundreds of people in all of these different creative situations. There's definitely like something to be said about a person who kind of goes off on their own and tries to do everything themselves and more power to those people for sure. But I agree with you 100%. It's a great feeling when you're able to be in that position to like help these things come to life. Which leads to my next question. What do you see in the future for the studio? Well, we we are definitely always forward thinking as far as like the things we want to do to the space to make it better. Um, big like big picture we'd love to add onto the building um obviously that is nowhere near coming to fruition because there's a lot of planning that goes into that but um long way down the road we want to add a third room we want to add to the building and make it more uh expansive something that would be like in between our a room and our b room so something that is like has a bigger live room because our b room is like just your edit lab production suite with a vocal booth um so you can't track drums in it you can't do like a lot of simultaneous recording in it so something that is in between our big a room and our b room is something that we would love to add in the future 
we definitely have a lot of uh, more uh, tech things that are uh, we're staring down. <laughs> uh, we're looking at some computer upgrades, some interface upgrades. We're in the middle of trying to map all that stuff up. I think that is going to start to take place in the next few months. Uh, we definitely want to keep growing as far as like what we may be able to offer. Um, like uh, just I we try we're all we're always thinking about like different ways to be supportive within our community um we've kicked around like ideas and how to because we're we're a staff-based studio like we're trying to figure out ways to like more folks feel like they 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 can come in and make a record here with maybe their their other end their engineer they like to work with because you know like while there's like some great facilities in the area that that do that on a more freelance base we're thinking about ways how we could be more accessible to people in that way just by nature of like you know making it easier to like book this place the logistics behind running this place we're always trying to like make it so that like we can be accessible to everyone so we have some ideas kicking around like there yeah just any way we can grow and be supportive and be better in in the boston music community is something that we're always taking a look at and um it's as you can imagine it's fluid (laughs) just like anything else in this industry but uh we, we are always kind of got our finger on like how can we be better at what we're doing Yes, it takes a lot of dedication, hard work, effort, sacrifice. Uh, Sometimes things don't always work out the way that you want them to. And sometimes something wonderfully unexpected happens. And that's just all part of running a small business, running a studio. And I think The Bridge is one of the shining examples of a recording studio in New England that does it and does it correct. I also think everybody should go look at your Instagram. <laughs> I think it is it is the most beautiful it's the most beautiful social media um recording a studio account <laughs> uh, I think I've seen in a long time. It's um there's there's profiles on everybody that uh, works at the studio, all the photography. You can really see the B room, the uh, Studio A control room, the live room. You can see that the, this is a studio that is always on. Um, question, what is this afternoon? What is this coffee? It's like this Monday coffee thing that you're doing on Instagram. What is that all yes. about? So we are always trying to find ways, not only just to showcase um the studio itself, but we also want to showcase the artists that we work with. So we have the idea, we have these fancy new mugs that we have at the studio now with our logo, and we want to showcase our space. So we take a photo with something that may be interesting at the studio and then tag an artist that has made a record here and share their music that that, that has been recorded on here. The idea being, you know, not only do we, you know, record and mix your music and you know help you realize it but we're gonna we want to support you even after like the record has been made so we're always trying to find ways that we can share the art art of the artists that work here with us and that was just like this fun creative way that we came up with to like be able to do that just constantly just be sharing and showing people uh, not only our space but the the folks who choose to make music with us yeah, it's really awesome. So if you want to take a look at their Instagram, it's Instagram.com forward slash the bridge sound and stage. And uh what is your website? 
thebridgesoundandstage.com. You guys have really improved this live room, the way it looks, like with all of the um, the wood and the absorbers. And you recently made a couple of other changes, right? Yep. We just, um, our, our, our good friends at Soundwall Construction built us a new amp isolation room, uh, which has been fantastic. We had this like spot in our live room where the we used to just kind of wheel the piano into um, that uh, we were just trying to figure out ways of having more isolation, more flexibility for live recording, because that's like how I do most of my records is, uh, you know, I, I get the band playing in the room live, but I isolate a lot of the amplifiers so that I get the live band feeling without having to commit to any bleed. And I felt found myself needing, you know, more amp isolation. And then rather than like, you know, we, we looked at like trying to like soundproof our Studio B control room a little bit more to like use that more as an amp ISO room because it is wired to our Studio A to be an emergency ISO booth. But rather than, you know, invest like all of this time and energy and money into like making a control room, an isolation room on top of it. We're just like, if we're just going to shove amplifiers, there's this like corner in the live room like that is not being used. Let's build like a new amp ISO room. And um, having that has given us so much more flexibility for live recording. It's been great. We just put new floors in. I don't know if, I can't remember if those are on the site just yet. Um, I don't think so. A, I'm still seeing the checkerboard on the website. The checkerboard is gone. The checkerboard lives on in the lounge. <laughs> it's still ska in the lounge, but <laughs> it's not, no longer ska in the live room. There were some folks who oh I work with God. who are very upset that the ska floor is gone. <laughs> That's the greatest thing I've heard today. <laughs> <laughs> it's still sky in the lounge. Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, no, there are pictures on Instagram of the new floor, and it is gorgeous. We're going to be revitalizing our site in the next few weeks, so there's going to be a lot of new photos that go up there. That's great. That's really great. Well, listen, Alex, I just want to express my gratitude for your time today. Thank you so much for talking to me about your journey and the bridge, and I hope to see you in person soon. Yes, I hope to see you too. I'm going to try to make it out to that AES networking night at Q. I, I got that circled on my calendar. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Uh, the local Boston AES has a networking night at Q Division Studios on September 20th. And we've got more coming on the way. And thank you so much for listening. The High Pass Podcast is a production of Quiet House Media and is lovingly produced and edited by yours truly, Derek Blackburn. I'm talking to the third person again. If you have any questions or comments or you just want to drop us a line, you can go to highpasspodcast.com forward slash contact. I read all the mail you guys send me. So you got something nice to say, say it to my face. <laughs>